We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to deal with something I've discussed in previous shows, and that's the various genres of literature in the Bible, and how do we interpret them and apply them as we read the scriptures. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. On today's show, I want to talk about the various different genres of literature that we find in the Bible. And one of the reasons I want to do that is in previous shows that I've done over the course of the last couple days, I've cited several different passages in the New Testament, passages that were written by St. Peter, St. Paul, St. Jude, St. James, and even quotations from Jesus as they are cited in Revelation, which was written by John. All of these passages are written in a certain genre of literature. And then we have Old Testament passages that may be written in different genres. Now, what do I mean by genres? Well, you have poetry, you have prose, you have prophecy, you have parables, you have descriptive literature and prescriptive literature. You have proscriptive literature. All of these types of literature exist under one cover in the Bible. 66 different books that were written by various different authors over the course of centuries. They've all been collected under one cover, as I've said. They've been canonized by the church, by our forefathers, our forebears in the faith, as the revealed word of God. And some people just embrace that by faith and don't have any questions about what I just said. Others, like myself, have a little bit more of a questioning mind. And you want to understand, how does this all fit together and how does this all work? Can we trust this, this document, these documents, as being God's word to us? And if so, how do we deal with the various different objections that people have? For example, what about those Old Testament war passages? Those are incredibly violent. Are you telling me that that's the revealed word of God? And how about, you know, verses that say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, we know children that have been trained up in the right way, but yet they still departed from the faith in their later years. So how do we deal with that particular statement in Scripture that doesn't seem to play itself out as being accurate in every single situation in our various different lives and various different families? Do you get my point? And how do we reconcile the Jesus of the New Testament with the Father, Father God, Yahweh of the Old Testament? Are these two different gods, or is it the same God? These are questions that 
We all have. And as I said, some of us have resolved these questions by pure faith, and we, we just move on. But there are a lot of us who have questions, and we want to understand how to apply these particular passages to our daily lives. So on today's show, I'm going to discuss some of the passages that I've already read in earlier programs this week, specifically the passages that I used to refute this pastor, I think he's from North Carolina, who's been out on the stump recently telling people that the Bible is just laden. It's rife with passages that tell us we're supposed to stone women who want a divorce. And I've pointed out to you that that is not true. This pastor is either incredibly ignorant or he's intentionally deceptive. And he's also saying that the Bible doesn't say anything about the consequences of homosexual activity, which is pure baloney. I mean, it starts telling you about the consequences of homosexual activity in Genesis, and it keeps telling you about the consequences in Leviticus, and then it continues to tell you about the consequences in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, James, 1 and 2 Peter, Jude, and then it concludes in Revelation. So there's a consistent thread, as I've said on earlier shows, of a biblical sexual ethic that never changes, never changes. And that might be important for this pastor to point out. But again, you've already heard me say that. So what I want to deal with today is set the foundation for how we can draw conclusions such as the one I just drew for you about the consistent, uh, unchangeable, immutable sexual ethic that is described from the beginning to the end of the Bible and does not change. And therefore, the context of what Christians have concluded in terms of the way we're supposed to live our lives sexually, it's, it's, it's rock solid. It's, it's a foundation that we can rest on, that we can build our families upon, our relationships upon, our marriages upon, our culture upon, because this is something that's been tested by time proven by reason, tested by experience, and finally revealed in Scripture to us. Again, if you listen to previous shows, you'll recognize I just cited the quadrilateral again. Well, I'm Dr. Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. Thanks for listening into the show. Again, those of you who follow The Rebellion on a routine basis know that you can subscribe to The Rebellion by going to patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. Again, if you'd like to subscribe and support what we do on a daily basis, I remind you, this takes a little bit of work. I've had people ask me over the course of the last week more than once, you do this every day? And I've said, yeah, I do it five times a week, Monday through Friday. I uh, post a new episode of The Rebellion. And the show also airs live every morning at 7.30 a.m. Oklahoma time on KOKL Radio, Brooks Brewer and the Brew, down in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, where you can listen to it there, either on your radio or you can listen to it on your computer if you just want to upload it there and listen online. So again, thank you for all of that uh, patience that you've just given me in terms of sharing some of that uh, Uh, some of that housekeeping with you. So back to the topic of the show, the Bible. How do we interpret it and how do we read it? And I've said that 
there are different genres of literature. I'm going to repeat myself here. The Bible contains poetry. The Bible contains prophecy. It contains parables. Now, poetry and prophecy and parables are three different ways to communicate. When Jesus told parables, he's not necessarily sharing an historically accurate account of something that happened. It's a parable. It's meant to teach the audience a principle, a truth. For example, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. This doesn't necessarily refer to a specific father and a specific son, but it's teaching us truths about this relationship between father and son, the son's rebellion, and the father's forgiveness. That's the truth that we are to latch on to. And if we were to discover that Jesus wasn't specifically referring to an actual father and an actual son, that doesn't negate the accuracy and the inerrancy of the Bible. Do you get my point there? And poetry. When the Bible talks about the sun rising in the east and setting in the west, don't tell me that it's not accurate, that they don't know what they're talking about because the sun doesn't really rise. Uh, the, the earth rotates around the sun. The sun doesn't rotate around the earth. That's not the point. It's poetic reference to what we see the sun doing. And therefore, the Bible is accurate in what it's describing. And when we talk about prophecy, totally different type of literature. It's a totally different type of revelation. We're told that prophets have to be proven. Their accuracy is important. So if you've got a, got a prophet that's telling you that something is going to happen in the future and it doesn't happen, what does the Bible tell us about that person? Well, it's very clear. That person is a false prophet. And there are very specific ways we're supposed to respond to a false prophet. And the first way is not to listen to them any longer because they're either delusional or they're lying. And we shouldn't attend to them. So prophets are proven by the accuracy of those things that they tell us are going to happen. Okay, so you've got different genres here. And we have a different genre called descriptive literature versus prescriptive literature or proscriptive literature. Now, descriptive literature is something that describes an event but doesn't necessarily mean that it is holding that event in high regard. In other words, a passage of Scripture that describes an event doesn't necessarily mean that you're supposed to go out and do it. For example, uh, the passages that tell us how King David lusted after Bathsheba and then committed adultery with her, um, and then committed murder by consigning Uriah, her husband, to the front line of of warfare so that he would get killed. Does this mean that that's the way you're supposed to behave? Is that what scripture is telling you? Well, obviously not. This is a descriptive passage. It's not a prescriptive passage, and we shouldn't read it differently. And then you have the progress of Revelation from Old Testament to New Testament, and you also have passages that are specifically intended for the Jews in the Old Testament and how they were to define their culture, their nation. Those passages don't necessarily carry forward to the New Testament and the inclusion of Gentiles in the body of Christ. 
We know this because we see that Peter himself didn't feel comfortable about breaking the dietary codes of the Old Testament Jews. But he is told by virtue of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the sheet coming down from heaven with various different animals on the sheet, and Peter is told to take and eat, that those Old Testament dietary codes were no longer in effect for Gentile Christians. We know this. The issue of circumcision was very important for Old Testament Jews. But we know that in the New Testament that Paul makes it very clear that that is not required of New Testament Christians, of Gentile Christians, that that is not something they have to subscribe to any longer, that they're grafted into the body of Christ, to the family of God, without having to go through that ceremonial rite. Now, why did God change it? I don't know, but we know in Scripture he did. Therefore, there's a progress of revelation. And when you see that progress take place, you can't ignore it. But what we do know when we refer to the sexual ethic is the progress is consistent. In other words, there is no change. As we progress through time, there's consistency, there's immutability, there's unchangeable aspects of various different requirements that God places upon us. For example, the Ten Commandments. When he tells us not to lie, he never changes that and says, okay, you can start lying now. You don't see that in the New Testament. When he says, thou shalt not commit murder, you don't see that changing in the New Testament where Jesus says, well, it's okay for you to start murdering now. You see consistency there. The progress of revelation is one that stays firm and consistent. All right, from the progress of the Old Testament to the New Testament, you don't see any change there. And the sexual ethic is the same way. When I've had people challenge me about homosexuality, one of the things that uh, sets the issue aside very quickly and silences the objector is this particular rhetorical question. Show me one passage, one statement in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that says anything positive about homosexual behavior or homosexual identity. Show me one. Where does the Bible ever say anything good about this? And there's always silence because there's nothing in the Bible that's positive about that. There's nothing in the Bible that's positive about any breach of the sexual ethic, fornication, adultery, incest. Oh, some of my naysayers may be listening right now and you'd say, well, Solomon had 100, 400, 900, I can't remember how many it is, hundreds of wives and concubines. Yeah, he did. Now, stop and think. Where am I going with this? You should be able to predict what I'm going to say right now. Is that descriptive or is that prescriptive? When we read that Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines, is it a description of what Solomon did or is it a prescription? Is that a prescription of how we're supposed to live? Well, it's obviously descriptive. And likewise, some of the war passages, in fact, A lot of the war passages, in fact, most all of the war passages, are descriptive. If you read the problem passages with this in mind, that you've got various genres of literature, what I can tell you right now is 90%, 99% of your objections and questions with regard to the Bible are going to go away. Oh, there are still some issues in play, and I'll admit that. 
Uh, you, you, you will see in the Old Testament that God told the Israelites to go attack a people and ex- essentially exterminate them. That's a hard one. That seems to be a prescription for Israel to do something. But here's the key. It was a prescription for Israel to do that. We don't see the progress of Revelation carrying forth into the New Testament, where New Testament believers are told to do the same thing to their adversaries. Now, you may rightly ask, why? Why would God tell the Jews to do that? Well, I can speculate that maybe it was because God understood that the cultures around Israel at the time, the Canaanites and Hittites and whatnot, were so corrupt and so violent and so vile that they were lost. They were beyond redemption. And therefore, if Israel was to have a pure culture, a defined culture, one that was committed to God and not contaminated by its neighbors, that some pretty aggressive things had to be done to protect it. Uh, You may disagree with what I just said, but that's a possibility that we need to consider. And in doing so, we need to consider it with humility. You're not God and neither am I. And God has the right to do what he will do with his creation to ultimately fulfill his sovereign plan of grace in our lives. He can't protect us from the consequences of our sin. And when we dig in so deeply that we're totally lost, totally corrupted, and our souls are lost and, to- and black to the core, there are consequences that come with that. And maybe that is the context in which we ought to consider some of the Old Testament passages that are difficult for us to understand. But all that said, I want to make sure I've got time to talk about some of the New Testament passages and why, why, I'm, uh, uh, why I'm dealing with these genres of literature today. Because when people respond to me or you or anyone else that quotes the Bible with regard to the sexual ethic, there's one thing that they almost always do today. It's as predictable as the sunrise. The naysayer who wants to be more progressive, wants to affirm a different sexual lifestyle and ethic and standard of morality, will look down their nose at the biblical Christian and say, well, if you believe the Bible, then you've got to follow all of it. You've got to obey the entire thing, don't you? And, well, you know, the Bible says that you're not supposed to eat shellfish, And the Bible says that women are supposed to wear a head covering in church. Do you eat lobster? Do you eat uh, shrimp? And do, do your daughters and wives all wear scarves or hats to church today? If, if you're violating those passages, then you're not honoring the Bible. So you are the one who's cherry picking your verses and being inconsistent here. It's not me. That's what we will often hear, and I'm venturing to guess that many of you have received those types of responses. They go back to Leviticus and the Levitical law, where God is prescribing to the Jews how they are to live within their culture and within their nation. But I've already answered this one, because I've already told you a few minutes earlier that that is a prescription for Israel. And the progression of Revelation from that particular time to the New Testament times obviously obviously brought a measure of grace with it because 
Peter himself, the rock upon which Jesus built his church, tells us that those dietary codes are no longer applicable for New Testament Christians. So Peter answers that. I don't have to. You don't have to. St. Peter did, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's revelation to him. It's in the Bible. So we can set those dietary restrictions aside, because Peter tells us to do so. He's told to take up and eat. Okay. Likewise, they could say, well, if any of your boys are uncircumcised, then you're violating the scriptures because the Bible tells you to circumcise all of your male children. Well, read the Bible because Paul deals with this, okay, that this is no longer a requirement for the body of Christ, for the church, for the New Testament believers, they did not have to abide by that Old Testament standard any longer. Again, you may ask why. I don't know for sure why, but I know what the Bible says. So when somebody wants to play the I gotcha game by saying, well, you guys don't obey Levitical law, my response is you might want to read those passages in the New Testament that already address that stuff. Okay? So I'm going to conclude right now by going to those passages that I read in an earlier show. And those passages come out of um, St. Paul's writings, St. Peter's writings, and St. Jude's writings in the New Testament. I'm going to read them to you, and while I read them, these passages on the sexual ethic and how we're supposed to behave with each other, I want you to be thinking, is this descriptive? Is this prescriptive? Is this proscriptive? Is it prophecy? Is it parable? Is it prose? Is it poetry? I want you to be thinking about what type of literature this is. So St. Paul says this, In the last days there will come lovers of self, proud, arrogant, without self-control, not loving good, lovers of pleasure. Avoid such people. These men oppose the truth. They are men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Close quote, St. Paul. Well, what kind of literature is that? I would argue it's prophetic. The time is coming. In the last days, there will come. Lovers of self, proud, arrogant, without self-control. And it's also prescriptive because he tells us what to do. Avoid such people. Avoid these people. So this is prophetic, but it's also instructive and prescriptive because he's telling us what to do when this time comes. So ask yourself this question. Are we in that time? And what should you be doing? Here's a passage from Peter in one of his epistles. It says this, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring destructive heresies. They will exploit you with false words. But these, like irrational creatures of instinct, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, and they will be destroyed. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice with sensual passions. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires. Take care that you are not carried away 
with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. Close quote, St. Peter. Again, what kind of literature is this? I would argue it's the same. It's prophetic. In the last days, the time is coming, but it's also prescriptive. It's telling us to take care. Take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your stability. And then there's this passage in Jude. For certain people have crept in who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. These people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, do instinctively. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is also about these that it is prophesied, behold, the Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all, the ungodly, of all their deeds of ungodliness. That's Jude in his epistle. Again, this has a hint of, uh, of prophecy to it, but it's also present tense for certain people have crept in. He says they are going to do so, but he says they're already there. So what kind of literature is this from Jude? Well, again, it has a hint of prophecy. It's telling us what will happen, but like I said, it also is in the present tense, telling us that this is already happening and it's going to continue to happen in the future. But it's also telling us what to do about it. It's telling us to recognize that when this happens, we need to make judgments accordingly. So this gets to the passage that everybody quotes all the time. Judge not, lest he be judged. Well, again, context is king. Well, I would argue that that quotation from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is a prescriptive form of literature. He is prescribing how we are to behave. Judge not, lest he be judged, but we need to read it within the context of the entire paragraph, as I've said a thousand times. And that is, he's not telling us not to judge. He's telling us that when we do judge, we better be doing it with integrity and be prepared to be judged in the same manner that we're judging. Because if he didn't intend us to judge at all, he wouldn't have said later on in the paragraph, by their fruit you shall know them, which is a judgment. Get my point? So today's lesson, if you will, is a lesson on how to read the Bible. And just because it has different genres of literature doesn't mean that it lacks accuracy or veracity. In fact, if you read it within the context of those genres, it jumps alive before your very eyes, and 99.9% of the problems you have with the Bible go away because you're reading it like you would read any other book. You're reading it in context. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.